Hi, Guy here. Hope you're well. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. This uh, episode's interviewee is Felice Gersh. Now, Felice is a multi-award winning obstetrician and gynecologist, and she's the founder uh, of the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine. Uh, now, after completing her medical training in California, University of Southern California Medical School, she spent many years working as a doctor where she developed a unique take on women's health care and began to explore an interest in holistic approaches to healing. She then graduated uh, in integrative medicine from the University of Arizona. Now she lectures at universities and speaks at conferences all over the world about integrative medicine. And she also campaigns to help increase understanding of polycystic ovary syndrome, the most common cause of female infertility worldwide. Uh, in this really fascinating and, and ultimately moving interview, uh, listen to uh, Felice explain what it was like being one of the first female undergraduate students at Princeton, why she feels uh, she benefited from her parents convincing her that she should pursue one of three possible careers, and why she now plans to write a new book every year. Just one more thing to tell you, I had a really bad cold when we recorded this interview, so if you hear some sneezing, that's me, not Felice. I wanted to start by asking you about uh, something that I know you've been involved in recently, which is this uh, documentary about fasting, uh, because fasting is a bit of a hot topic for many people at the moment. So I just wanted to start by asking you about how uh, you first became aware of fasting as a as an idea and then how and also how you got involved in the the documentary and what that's all about sure i had no relationship with fasting whatsoever until one day when a telephone call came in to my office and it turned out it was a marketing specialist who'd been hired by a startup company which hadn't even started yet so it was the uh the precursor to the development of what was an offshoot of the research at the Longevity Institute at USC. And it turned into a company that was uh, you know, sponsored in part by USC itself and by other people and venture capital and so forth. But before they even made a product, they sent out this marketing person to gather information and interview of 100 or so, I think it was like between 100 and 150 doctors that they felt would be maybe receptive to this whole concept of fasting. And they were looking for what they call integrative doctors. And, and that's one of the, that's what I am, an integrative mm. doctor. Just define so what that I, means, just for what, what does integrative doctor mean? It means that we have a broader view of the, the person, that we don't just look at like what a, a person has a set of symptoms. We look at a person in the context of their environment, their family, their work, their stress, their their mm. childhood, even their in utero life mm. and so forth. And then we incorporate therapeutic tools that go far beyond just pharmaceuticals and surgeries. We look at a lot of mind-body medicine, like meditation and guided imagery, tapping, uh, yoga, things of that sort. We use massage therapy and a lot of herbal therapy, nutritional supplements, uh, vitamins, and so forth, and um, acupuncture. So we just incorporate a whole, a much greater therapeutic toolbox, but everything is evidence-based. It's not just random things mm. that somebody <laughs> says, you know, it's all based on, on physiology, functional medicine, like looking at how cells work, how the body works, and incorporating things that 
that are evidence-based because we know that in order to really heal someone, we have to get to the root cause Mm. of the problem. We can't just work to cover up the symptoms, not that we're like in favor of ignoring symptoms. I mean, we want to improve the quality of lives by reducing symptoms, but we don't want to just do that, which is really what conventional medicine is primarily about. Mm. We want to get to the underlying cause of what is happening and and support wellness. So it's health is not viewed as just the absence of disease. It's it's being vibrant. It's being able to do everything in life that you want to do Mm. and having what we call a health span, meaning that you live your entire life, however long that is, hopefully long, but you live it to the fullest capacity that that can be had, Mm. that you're not going into this chronic steady decline that many people have during the last even three decades of their lives, you know, and then it's rather living high and well, and then maybe the last three to six months of life is when you have a sudden decline. So, you know, you can really live life to the fullest and and use all these tools. So that's really where integrative medicine comes okay. in. We incorporate a lot of a lot of lifestyle stuff, mm. you know, exercise, nutrition. I want to make sure I incorporate that as mm. well. Okay. So they knew you might be, re- for those reasons, that you would might be receptive to this idea of fasting. But until then, you, until you had that phone call, you didn't have a, uh, any kind of view on it at all. No, I really didn't. And I so I took the the survey because it sounded interesting. And I, I always try to be um, receptive you know, to every kind of new idea. So I had a very nice conversation with the, the gentleman who was doing this marketing survey. And I did not know at the time that there was a secret agenda to this marketing survey. Hmm. So the primary objective was to get opinions from doctors who might be the most receptive to this concept of a product that would be what what they were selling and planned to sell was a fasting mimicking diet where you would eat for five days, but your body would get the same benefit and think that you actually fasted for four. Mm -hmm. So it was a fasting, the first and only fasting mimicking diet. So that was the primary objective of the survey. But there was a secret um, objective, and that was to find one doctor out of this entire group that was interviewed that would be the beta test site for using this product in their practice and trying it out on real people in a real-life situation, not just in a university study situation, which is all they had done up to that point, Mm. and also potentially become sort of a... uh, a medical advisor, because all the people that had been working with the the, um, the Longevity Institute were PhDs. None of them were MDs. So none of them actually had a clinical practice. They were researchers. So they wanted to see what it was like in the real world. And, you know, I was fortunate. I was the one that was chosen out of the crowd. Mm. And so I ended up having one-on-ones. Uh, and I had an interview with in person with the marketer, and then they had me meet in person with and be interviewed by the CEO the, that was for the startup. Mm. And then I ended up um, talking to the chief medical, rather it was the chief science officer, and we had um, a, like an hour-long interview. They gave me a lot of research papers to read, and I was, it was almost like a, an oral quiz. Mm-hmm. And then I went on campus, and I had lunch and spent the afternoon with Professor Walter Longo, the director. So I had to go through all those stages just to be a volunteer, right. to actually um, have um, my practice be used as the the first site to actually utilize it in a real-world setting. 
And uh, so I went through all of that, and then that's exactly what happened. So I incorporated it into my practice, and I had experience using it with patients, and I started using it myself. So I've done the fasting mimicking diet myself like 13 times now. Okay. And just I'm explain, how does, how does that work then? How does that work, the fasting mimicking diet? Well, it's really quite brilliant. I call it stealth food. So it's food that was designed specifically with nutrient and caloric content that it would fly fly under the radar of detection of the nutrient sensors in the body. So you, there, you could actually eat food and your body doesn't see it. So what you're doing is you eat for five days. Hmm. And of course, it's not a ton of food because there's just so much food you can eat and have your body still think that you're fasting. Hmm. But it's adequate. It's it's much more than nothing. And I'll tell you, it's, it's tasty. It's sort of Mediterranean style because Professor Longo is from Italy and he likes the Mediterranean style diet. Hmm. And he refused to make this into a shake, something like that. He said, no, these are sit-down meal. So the breakfast is a, a tasty nut bar, and then there's a lunch and a dinner that consists of a soup, different soups, and then you also get what I call little doodads. You get either some olives or a little cocoa crisp or kale crackers. Different days are different, and the total for the first day is a little bit more. You get two nut bars and extra of these little doodads. There's also like a little energy drink that you have on day two through five, so the first day is about 1,100 calories, and then the next four days are a little under 800 calories. And so it's not a ton of food, but it, you get very, they also have tea, so you stay very well hydrated. Hmm. And you sit down and you actually have these three meals, and, and it's only five days. So it's so much easier to do than eating nothing, but just drinking water for four days. And it's um, it's an incredible type of thing for the body and it's really just it's perfectly aligned with a doctor like myself who's an integrative doctor because what we look for are ways to harness the body's own intrinsic mechanisms right and what is more intrinsic to the body than dealing with lack of food because you know humans evolved so long ago when food was scarce Hmm. and so in order to survive as a species we had to evolve so that we could do well even in the absence of food. And so that's sort of what's happening when you have a very short-term fast. After about three days, the body says, you know what, there's no food coming in, so I really have to get my act together if I'm going to survive because I don't know if food is going to come. So at that point, suddenly the body starts killing off crappy cells. Hmm. We call that programmed cell suicide or apoptosis. And it takes healthy cells and it really goes into action to rejuvenate them. So it's like recycling the cellular components to make the cell healthier. So it takes all like the different organelles, the membranes and so on inside the cell, and it recycles them into amino acids, fatty acids, and then reconstructs new organelles. So it's like a totally rehabbed cell. And so it does that to the good cells. And then it starts burning because you need energy, right? Because you have no food coming in. So it starts Mm. burning fat. But for some reason, the body knows to burn the bad fat, the visceral fat, the inflammatory fat first. So it starts burning that kind of fat. And then you have to be smart, right? If you're going to survive, you have to go find food. So it actually increases brain growth factors like brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So you actually get more alert 
you you feel calmer, you feel smarter, you are smarter. Mm. They actually tested with mice. They they ran the, the mazes enormously better. So the mice got smarter. Mm. And people certainly feel smarter. And we know that it increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I, I always feel much smarter on day five. <laughs> so and uh, so it's... Um, you know, it's it's all it's all about survival. Hmm. So, in when people do this, they basically it's like a reboot to everything. Now they've actually had some studies that show that fasting can be a reboot to your circadian rhythm. It helps you get back in line uh, and aligned with the beat of the earth. It also improves your gut microbiome because you get something of a gut rest, hmm. and it helps to heal leaky gut and improves the gut microbiome diversity, which we now know is so critical for health. So it um, basically works throughout the organs of the body to really um, make everything better. Most of the organs of the body actually shrink, which sounds terrible, but Mm. they're actually killing off the bad cells. And then they just regrow back to normal size as the stem cells are stimulated, because that's what happens um, when you go, when you do this fast, towards the end, you actually start stimulating stem cells to replace the cells that were killed off. So here, you know, people are traveling all over the world to try to get stem cells injected. Well, we have our own natural stem cells, and this actually activates them. Mm. So you rejuvenate your own organ. So it's really rejuvenation from within. Mm. So it's a it's great. You mentioned that it's good for the brain, you feel cleverer, and also for the gut. But does, does it have, did you find that it positively affects people with existing medical conditions as well? Yes, they're doing something like 20 studies right now. In terms of actual medical conditions, they've shown that it reduces all the markers associated with cardiometabolic dysfunction. So it it reduces inflammatory markers. It improves blood pressure. When people have hypertension, it becomes better. But if you have normal blood pressure, it doesn't lower it below normal. So it, it goes to like a healthy spot. So it improves blood pressure. It um, reduces elevation of cholesterol. So for cardiometabolic um, issues, it, it improves hemoglobin A1C. It lowers fasting blood sugar. So it has all the benefits that people are needing when they have these cardiometabolic issues. In addition, they've done some studies in conjunction with a research group in Germany and using the mouse model of multiple sclerosis, they've shown that in mice, they can actually completely cure, which is amazing. They can cure this mouse model of multiple sclerosis. And in humans, they've actually regrown myelin sheaths, which is phenomenal. So they're doing more research now in the world of autoimmune disease. They're also now doing studies with um, other centers looking at dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. So there's now um, a great deal of of research ongoing. It improves mood, and so they're looking at that for psychiatric issues. So right now, it's still in its infancy in terms of a lot of the research, but so there's there's just a huge flurry of research that's ongoing right now, Mm. and everything is looking good. So we know a lot about mice, that is true, Mm -hmm. and a little bit less in humans, but in terms of um, mice, it all looks great. And now we're getting human data and it's looking great as well. But, you know, you have to sort of work a little bit initially on faith while we wait for all these human studies to come out. Mm. But um, I can't see any negative. There's only positive. People are losing weight, and we don't actually use it in my practice as a weight loss tool because I don't really focus on weight loss in my office. I focus on health, and I say people lose weight as sort of a fringe benefit because... um, 
you really have to people actually have to have nutrients on board in order for their bodies to harness and, and incorporate the mechanisms that are needed to burn fat. Mm. Many people, they really are very bad at burning fat. They're very good at storing fat. So we really have to work on getting them healthy and then they can start losing fat because otherwise a lot of times when people try to lose weight, they end up losing a lot of muscle mass, mm. which is you know, not, not useful at all. That's why in my practice we do body compositions so we can see when people are losing weight, what they're actually losing, because precious lean body mass is not what we want to lose. And that's been one of the wonderful things about the fasting mimicking diet mm. is that as long as you have enough fat to burn, if you're too thin or too lean, then that's not for you because you have to have some fat. Mm. Most of us don't have the problem of not having enough <laughs> fat, so it's okay. But um, there's a few people out there that have almost no fat. So those are not candidates. Mm. But um when you do the fasting mimicking diet and you have some fat on board, they've shown that you actually almost completely lose the fat and you preserve the lean body mass, which we really can't afford to lose. Mm. So is it, is it safe for people to fast? I mean, you know, the idea of fasting for five days, I know you're talking about the fasting mimicking diet here too, but the, the idea of fasting for five days, not eating, seems very alien to me and to many people. I mean, is it a safe thing to do? It is, but I do like to and recommend that people do it under the guidance of a healthcare professional, um, especially in the beginning. Um, there are some people that will get lightheaded, feel weak, have headaches. So especially the first time around, there are some people that don't feel that well. I personally had no symptoms whatsoever. I moved very easily from burning glucose into burning fat. But some people have a lot of trouble. People who eat, now I'm not sure what people say about this um, on the other side of the Atlantic, but mm. in the U.S. we call it the standard American diet. Mm. Sometimes it's referred to as the Western diet, which is a terrible diet. <laughs> it's filled with high fructose corn syrup, lots of processed carbohydrates, lots of processed food with lots of chemicals. And that's unfortunately what a lot of people here are eating on a regular basis. And because of that, and they eat all the time, like that's another area which we call time-restricted eating. This idea that you should be eating all day long is a terrible idea. Mm. That is not a healthy way to live. The body wants to have two or at most three meals a day and you know, not be constantly eating all day long. But people who do that, and there's a lot of people who do, they tend to really get their bodies get used to burning just glucose. And they, they really have trouble transitioning from burning glucose into burning fat. And so during that time when their body, their glycogen stores, that's the, how glucose is stored in the body. When, when there's no food coming in and their glycogen stores are all gone, then what happens is they feel like they're going to die. They mm. literally feel like they're going to die. They're so um, hungry hmm. because their bodies are simply getting hypoglycemic and they're not burning the fat. Now, eventually they will. But during that time, that's when I found in my own practice with my patients that they would sometimes go more than a little crazy mm -hmm. and they would run and they just they just gave up. They said, I don't care. I give up. And they would uh, start eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> like like crazy. I don't know what that is. It's, everyone seemed to have some bread and some peanut butter and jelly and they would just start eating that. And of course, that completely negated any potential benefit from the fasting diet. So now we've learned tricks and, and and we've incorporated that, you know, universally. So if somebody is eating a crappy Western style diet, 
then what we must do is do what I call a reset, an anti-inflammatory reset for a month, where for one month they have to detox, essentially, off of their junk food. Mm. They have to stop eating all the processed foods and all the uh, the donuts and the bagels and the sweetened uh, coffee drinks and all that stuff. They have to get off of that. They have to start eating lots and lots of vegetables. Some people think a serving of vegetables is um, ketchup on their French fries. <laughs> no, you know, they, that's a fruit anyway. It's a tomato. But yeah. they, they get mixed up and they or they think you know, a little bit of shredded lettuce on a burger, that's like a vegetable serving. So they, they really eat very little, or what, what they eat is the same vegetable every day. So there's no diversity whatsoever. So we try to get them on a healthy diet for a month before trying to do any sort of fasting program whatsoever, because I know from experience that they're not going to do well. <laughs> they're going to, they're, they're just not going to get through more than a couple of days, and then they're going to go crazy and start eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or something, <laughs> you know, they're going to go to Krispy Kreme donuts. They're going to do something and, mm. and it's going to, and then they get so discouraged. It's hard to get them back on track. Mm. But when you, when you do it where you, you don't rush into it, you sort of set the tone by having them get used to eating real food and not eating all the time. So we want to get them to do this time restricted eating where we want to have like a big breakfast. If people will be willing to do that, that's mm. actually a very good way to start the day. And then try to eat an earlier dinner and try not to eat more than just three meals a day and no snacks. That is the best. Now, if people feel like they're desperate, they have to eat a snack, the best kind of snack would be something fatty, mm. like um, some olives or some nuts or a little bit of avocado. That would be a better way to go than... Mm. Um, you know, like a cookie or even, you know, some some toast or some crackers or something like that. We don't want to do that because that um, it really, the body doesn't really register fat in terms of eating because humans never evolved to just eat fat. They wouldn't just eat fat by itself. Mm. So if you just eat something that's high in fat, it, it actually isn't as bad for breaking sort of the fast as if you um, were eating a lot of protein or carbohydrate. Mm. It feels to me like the way you're talking about fasting that this maybe the way you see this is something that the world is about to or should be waking up to that this is a much healthier way of living than our current recommended diet. Is that fair to say? Well, there are so many things that need to be modified with our current, well, we'll say lifestyle mm. that most people are living. You know, most people are living where they have too much light. You know, we, we used to live in ancient times where when the sun set it was kind of dark maybe you know we had candles at a certain point but it used to be that people slept nine hours a day before the invention of the light bulb and now they're the average american sleeps like six hours a, a night mm. so things have changed so we're not in general we're eating the wrong foods we're eating processed foods we're eating around the clock we're eating late at night we're getting too much light People are sitting all day long. You know, unfortunately, we live in a world that's filled with environmental toxins. So, I mean, it's like when you when we talk guy about like <laughs> where should we start? This it's um, we definitely have to stop eating all the time, and we have to incorporate fasting, and that's really a very key tool. Mm. But we just have to work on all these different aspects of lifestyle because. It's really that one thing that we have learned is that you can't, and this makes it hard for people, but you can't just tackle one thing. You really have to, to really be 
optimally healthy, you have to tackle everything, hmm. you know, how you move, how you sleep, your your nutrition, your stress, you know, your overall environmental toxin load. We we have to it makes it complex, but we're complex creatures hmm. and we have to we have to incorporate many, many changes in our in our lives in order to try to get healthier. Now, in the United States, the average person now is overweight. It's something like, and I think it's the same in um, the UK. In the US, it's something like 70% of people are overweight or obese, and the incidence in children is is astronomically increasing. So, you know, clearly we need to do some major overhauls here across the board to try to get people healthier. Hmm. Just back to the, the, the idea of the research for a minute with this, because... Um, you know, the, 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 you said that the research is still in its infancy at the moment about this whole idea, but is the current research that's coming out, now, is it as rigorous as the research that's been done for, you know, the more traditional forms of medicine? Oh, absolutely. The, the fundamental research in terms of the mechanisms that are involved with fasting, that is really, um, has been robust and it's really um, been done at the most uh, advanced and very um, high-end universities like USC and so forth, and in conjunction with a number of other very high-end, very highly respected universities. So we, we really do understand what's happening on a cellular level with fasting and the mechanisms involved, what's happening in terms of the, uh, the different um, is these enzymes in the body that are called sirtuins. They're very ancient. They actually did research involving yeast and worms. It's it's conserved. These are conserved genes that go through the, the animal kingdom, going way back to such primitive creatures like yeast. And we understand that these are all survival mechanisms that are existing in virtually all living creatures. And it's, um, it's really fascinating on a cellular level to really look at what goes on in the body of these, mm. of every creature in order to survive, in order to deal with like food and metabolism regulation and so on. So the science of it is really very well understood. What's at the infancy is doing some of the clinical research in terms of how are we going to now use this to help people with a variety of illnesses. And because it works across the body, across every organ system, we can now incorporate it as and as we do more research into really almost every single aspect of health. For example, it's now been shown that it can help reduce fatty liver, which is an, another epidemic. And that's a huge problem when you have fatty liver for the, the, the every aspect of metabolic health in a human. So the research has been, has been published in the most high end of all the research journals. So it really is very, very robust. But the clinical implementation, that's where it's sort of still at the beginning stages. and, mm. and it, But it's growing by leaps and bounds as all these studies are, are being done. They're doing a lot of research as well in the world of cancer. I know they're doing some studies with MD Anderson and looking at combining fasting with different types of chemotherapy regimens. Mm. And it actually works that when you do these sort of briefer fasts before chemo, that it helps to take healthy cells and put them into almost like a hibernation state so that they are actually protected from it being injured by the chemotherapy. But the cancer 
is not, does not have that capability. So you actually make the cancer cells more vulnerable while you're actually protecting your own healthy cells. And the chemotherapy becomes both safer and more efficacious. So there's some amazing new potential uses mm. for this, like I mentioned, in autoimmune disease. But it's still, it is honestly at the earlier stages now. I mean, this this is all rather new. The research goes back over 20 years looking into different forms of nutrition and fasting, but to um, to really become fully implemented in our clinical use, it's still early. And most doctors don't know anything about this yet. Mm. You know, in, the, in our medical system in the U.S., in a conventional medical practice, they're not really implementing this. The doctors are always a little slow. Most doctors are um, a little adverse to doing new things when they mm. get kind of in um, the sort of their their usual form of treatment and practice. So we have to really get the word out. And uh, I am speaking um, all over the place now hmm. at different medical conferences, trying to educate doctors on that, you know, because a lot of doctors still think that the best thing for people is that they should eat every two hours to maintain their blood sugar. Hmm. And can you imagine that humans would have survived all these millennia if they had to eat every two hours? I mean, <laughs> we would have been extinct a long time ago because food was not you know, we were busy. We were, people were doing things. They couldn't like sit down and eat every two hours. Yeah. So uh, we just have to re-educate a lot of the doctors. And then the public seems to be sometimes on board even faster than the doctors. Hmm. So um, there's a lot of interest in this whole, whole world of fasting. But there's also a lot of confusion about how to use the words because sometimes hmm. people talk about fasting and they're talking about not eating for a few hours during the day, which we really don't talk about that as fasting. We talk about that as time-restricted eating. Mm. And then intermittent fasting is more like you don't eat for a day. And then periodic fasting is when you don't eat for three to five days. Okay. And then prolonged fasting is, of course, when you don't eat for, um, you know, if, if more than a few fast for more than about a week or 10 days. That is really prolonged fasting. And the body starts implementing all new pathways and strategies to survive once you get into a prolonged fast. So when you do a short fast, a, what we call a periodic fast, like either water fast for four days or the fasting mimicking diet for five days, you're actually up, you're upping your metabolic rate. You're not slowing your metabolic rate because the body is actually burning more more calories because it actually has to work. You know, mm. you're trying, you're in a survival mode, but in terms of being active. So you're actively surviving. You're going out there and hunting and finding food or raiding the next door village or whatever you have to do to find food. But once you get out much more than about 10 days and you haven't eaten any food, then the body goes into a different mode. It's more like survival mode. It's like, you know what? I'm really running out of my fat. I, I don't really have any stores anymore. I mean, this is not true today, but this is in ancient times. Mm. Once you got out around 10 days, you didn't have a whole lot of, you know, uh, spare body fat at that time. And so it was like, we better hunker down and hope somebody saves us. So at that point, the metabolic rate starts to slow. So you're not going to be. That's why when people do very severe caloric restriction over time, their metabolic rate slows. And then when they start refeeding, they often will regain all the weight and they've often lost a lot of lean body mass. So it's it's not really productive when people try to starve themselves over a long period of time to lose weight. They will lose weight, but their whole metabolic set point is going to be 
reset at a lower rate and then they will gain the weight back and often more so. But when you do periodic fasting, like with the fasting mimicking diet or a four-day water fast, you're actually upping your metabolic rate. And they've shown that over the next six months, you maintain at least half of your weight loss and the benefits, even if you don't do anything, because you've actually altered your metabolic set point in a good way. So it's really totally different how you do fasting. If you fast where you just do like one day, um, like maybe two days a week, you're not going to change your set point. So you're not going to up your metabolic rate like you would with a periodic fast or mm-hmm. like the fasting the fasting mimicking diet, but you're not going to slow your metabolic rate like you would if you had a prolonged period of fasting. You just lose weight. And that's the, I mean, that's still, for most people, that is a benefit. If you mm-hmm. just don't eat for two days a week, you will lose weight. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's a good thing. But you're not going to... Um, upregulate your brain-derived neurotrophic factor. You're not going to incur any kind of stem cell stimulation. You're not. You're not going to. You're not going to do any of those other benefits that you get with the other types of periodic fasting. But you lose weight. Now, it's the reality is that very few people can sustain not eating for two days a week. I mean, that's that's. I mean, just not eating one day a week is really tough. Yeah, I mean, it feels a lot to most people. I think that. Yeah, I mean, I. I personally can't do that, mm-hmm. you know, like to, the idea that for the rest of my life, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat one or two days a week. It's, it's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, most people won't do that. And compliance is a huge problem, you know, motivating people and getting them to do things is really tough. So to, the idea that you're going to get a whole bunch of people to stop eating two days a week sort of indefinitely may be unrealistic. But the idea that you do a fasting mimicking diet for just five days out of a month, say three months in a row, and then maybe just four times a year, that's doable. Mm. So you have to meet people where they are, because it doesn't matter if you tell them to do a bunch of stuff that's good for them, and they know it's good for them. If they're not going to do it, what difference does it make, right? So implementation um, is a huge problem, you know, with changing people's lifestyles, getting people motivated. I've taken courses in motivational interviewing but i i give up you know it mm. i don't it's really hard to motivate people they either want to so or they don't so i usually ask my patients on a scale of one to ten like <laughs> how motivated are you so i know where you are right, right now like if i tell you to do a bunch of stuff are you really going to do it mm. or are you going to say nah that's too hard i think i'll just stay you know sick yeah. i mean like people make their choices right i mean mm. how many people do you know that know that they're doing the wrong thing, but they just keep doing it. Everyone, right? <laughs> including me. Okay. <laughs> okay, there you have it. Yeah, I think that's pretty normal, isn't it? I guess I guess that's the thing, isn't it? People have to be motivated to do these things, and you know, it's a, a case of getting the information to them from there. Now, away from fasting, your focus, uh, I think it's fair to say, is is very much on women's health, isn't it? And has been for a, a while. So just tell me a bit well, about yes. how um, how you went from, because you started off as an obstetrician gynecologist, didn't you? So how did you, you know, you how did when did you first really start to focus in on women's health? Well, I went right from medical school into a residency um, for obstetrics and gynecology. So I was right off the bat into women's health. And I went into it because I'm, I think because I associated with women very Mm. well and I myself had some medical issues. And I think that, you know, that is often 
um, a key player when people choose their specialty, either a family member had a medical issue or they themselves have an issue with there's something or like people who are athletes like to go into fields that maybe are orthopedic mm. or they broke bones. So, so I those had, issues were um, related to the, the, that field. Yeah, that is very, very common. And mm. I had some problems when I was um, younger, like in, in my 20s, I had really bad acne and I had crazy irregular cycles. I wasn't diagnosed at that time with polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm. It was later when I diagnosed myself because we now that's still a problem that women with this condition, which is the most common endocrine dis, dis, dysfunction of women, is often underdiagnosed. The diagnosis is missed sometimes for years mm. um, because doctors are just not thinking about it. So I did not know what was wrong with me, but I knew something was wrong with me because I this just isn't the way a woman is supposed to work. Mm. And I think that was part of why I ended up going into the field of OBGYN. Plus, I loved like adrenaline rushes. Mm. I was always <laughs> into the, And here I had the variety that was so unique in this field. I got to bring new life into the world. And sometimes it was like really, you know, scary, you know, because mm. women who are pregnant can have amazing um, emergencies. I mean, they can have the baby coming out with the feet, with the umbilical cord prolapsing, mm. with hemorrhaging. Um, they can have, you know, massive um, high blood pressure changes. And so there are complications that require split second decision making and, you know, a lot of um, major adrenaline rushes that come into play. And, and I felt I was you know, ready for that kind of a challenge. Mm. And then I liked the idea of when I did GYN part that I had patients that saw me on a regular basis. So I got to be kind of like their family doctor. Mm. And so I had consistency. I had the same patients that I could see for years. It wasn't just like a one hit kind of a thing. They came in, they saw you, they were gone. But I could have consistency and have a regular practice of patients. But as well, I got to do all kinds of interesting high-tech surgeries using all kinds of interesting toys like lasers and um, laparoscopes and hysteroscopes. And, you know, so I got to, it seemed like the best of all worlds. The only thing that I forgot along the way was that I would be working half the time in the middle of the night, you know, and <laughs> and it did, take, it did take a toll on me. In fact, you know, people said, you know, you know, a lot of people have babies during the night and you're <laughs> going to be up a lot at night. And it's like, now I'll be fine. But so I did. Uh, it, was, it was tough, you know, because it's really true. And it's all built into our circadian clock. I mean, women mm. go into labor during the night and typically deliver in the early morning hours. Mm. And that is nature's way of trying to save women because, you know, what what group is more vulnerable than a woman in labor, mm. right? I mean, she can't like, defend herself. So under the cloak of darkness, a woman in labor is going to be safer than in the middle of the day mm. when all the wild creatures are out and about. And uh, then she can deliver in the early morning hours and then, you know, can fend for herself or, you know, move and get somewhere else. So it's really nature's way of protecting women that they'll they'll go into labor during the night. But for me, as the obstetrician, it was tough because I had calls virtually every night, it seemed. for mm. So I did it for 25 years. Right. And then I said, I need I need some sleep. I need some <laughs> uninterrupted, you know, rest. And also I need to be able to be a little further from the hospital because mm. when people, you know, when people go into labor, you sometimes have to get there like really fast. Yeah. So it sort of, I had a very short radius. I had like <laughs> a leash that didn't go very far. So it was time after 25 years. And, and when I gave up doing obstetrics, 
that's when I started really thinking more about the whole integrative world. Mm -hmm. And I, I had time to look at what I was doing. And I, I had all of my pharmaceutical reps, they came through my office and they would bring in all their new drugs. And, and I, for the first time in my career, I insisted that they show me the studies for what, of what they were doing, you know, mm. in terms of what, what studies got their drugs approved. And as I looked at the studies and I really analyzed them and I looked at the side effect profiles, I was pretty discouraged. I mean, I, I really thought that this is not really helping a lot of my patients. Mm. And what am I doing now since I gave up obstetrics? And, and I was getting older and I really didn't want to do as much surgery. I still liked surgery, but I didn't want to just be a surgical technician. Mm. I wanted to and most of the diseases that I was doing surgery on were late stage. You know, people had very advanced endometriosis, giant fibroids, big ovarian tumors. It's like, can I do something being more proactive? Can mm. I try to not, you know, a lot of stuff in obstetrics and gynecology is we'll just watch it. And then when it gets really bad or really big, then we'll cut it out. Mm. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to just keep watching everything. You know, have you've, I'm sure you've probably been to a doctor and they said, well, watch this. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do I need you to watch it? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know I don't, so I didn't want to just watch stuff anymore. I wanted to be proactive, but I didn't have the tools. I didn't know how to be proactive. I didn't mm -hmm. know what to do. They don't, they didn't teach me anything about lifestyle medicine. They didn't teach me how to deal with stress for pa patients. I didn't know any of that. Mm -hmm. So I had to basically go back to school and do, I did a two year fellowship at the University of Arizona School of Medicine in integrative medicine to try to learn and get the tools so I could actually do things to help my patients in the early or preclinical, early stages of, of medical conditions Excuse rather me. than watching them until they were, you know, in a more severe state. And then we had to get really aggressive in terms of doing um, surgical interventions or, or even pharmaceutical interventions because mm. Um, in the U.S., they allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise on television. It's not, I know that's not allowed in very, very many countries. I mm -hmm. think only like maybe New Zealand is the only other country where they allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise on television. And they have to include their side effect profile. Mm -hmm. So they, they, it's really interesting when you hear the long, you know, litany of all the problems that can occur from this pharmaceutical <laughs> and then you mm. think is anyone going to buy this but you know they do it in such a way it's very clever you know they show people romping on the beach and they'll <laughs> say and this could actually kill you but but you know but you you just see these people happy dancing in a, or they're you know doing something really fun while they're telling you all this terrible stuff that mm. can happen but um but that's really not what I wanted to have part of my practice anymore if so you know I moved into this whole other world and once you get there, you can't look back. You can mm -hmm. never go back to just having such a little bit to offer patients like surgery and, and pharmaceuticals. So it's been um, a great joy doing all of this. And in the process, although my primary focus has remained on women, because I have now a double board certification in OBGYN and integrative medicine, mm. I have um, incorporated some of my patients' male family members into my practice because I don't know what else to do with them. And they have, you know, men often don't know where to turn when they're having medical problems. And they often just get put on a couple of different pharmaceuticals. And, and it's really not getting, like we talked about, into the underlying root causes. So uh, I do have a small but um, very pleasant to work with population of, of men in my practice now mm. as well. Hmm. So where you mentioned you had this 25-year career in uh 
you know, obstetrics and gynecology. Where were you physically, uh, geographically for that? When you, where were you living then? Well, I have been very um, steadfast in where I've been. I've just been in Orange County, California, in Irvine. Hmm. So the only city, after my residency, I moved to Irvine. I set up a practice in Irvine. And it was interesting at the time. I really didn't seek to start my own business and have my own practice. Hmm. It really, I wasn't really very, um, I didn't really have that entrepreneurial spirit. I just thought I would get a job. Hmm. And I, when I got out, it was quite a long time ago. And there were almost no women in OBGYN at that time. Now there's lots and lots. Hmm. I was like the very, very first that uh, group that was coming out that was female. Why was and that? I was not looking. Uh, it was a male field. Oh, oh it's really interesting because mm. now people think, well, how could OBGYN be a male-dominated field? But it was very male-dominated. There were very few women in it, and um, I think it, because it was a surgical, it was viewed primarily as a surgical field, and most of the surgical fields were male. But um, it's really, it was really interesting that it was almost all male, and. When I came out of my residency, even though I did extremely well and had all these honors and awards and everything, I was not looked at as a, um, you know, a benefit to uh, to ha- incorporate into someone's practice. Mm. They said, "Oh, she's going to have babies. Oh, she's going to be unreliable. Oh, she's going to, you know, right. just not not be a good worker. You know, she's going to want to stay home. She's going to do this and that." And so I was not really recruited heavily at all. And so I went and I looked at a couple of practices and um, they, they really, um, I didn't get that many offers. It seemed like, how could this be, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, because I did so well. But um, as I looked around and then I saw what was out there, you know, I said, you know what? If they could do it, I could do it. It mm. just, it sort of suddenly dawned on me that, you know what? If I really want to take care of patients the way I want to, because a lot of them were doing things I thought was kind of, you know, they weren't keeping up with some of the newest data. And so if I really want to have my own kind of um, focus on how to take care of women and and do it my way, then you know what? I have to actually do it my way. So mm. I took a two-day course that was sponsored by the California Medical Association at the time called How to Establish a Medical Practice. So that was my entire business education. I did a two-day <laughs> course. And then I went out and I rented space. I bought all the equipment. I took out a gigantic personally guaranteed loan and I started I started my own practice and I did moonlighting to help pay bills for about um, not even one year. Hmm. And then I was in the black and I didn't have to do moonlighting anymore. So how, but, old were you, um, how old were you when you set up that business and what was that whole process like of starting on your own? Well, it was uh, I was I was 29. Hmm. And I, um, it was, it was really exciting. I, you know, it was um, a world I never thought I'd be, and I didn't think I would be, you know, a business owner and start everything from scratch. Mm. <laughs> but you know, it was, it was turned out it was my right path mm. because at, as it grew, at uh, you know, I've changed everything. But at my peak, when I was doing obstetrics and gynecology, and I was doing a lot of obstetrics. I was the sole owner of this very, very large and busy practice. Uh, at its peak, I had something like six OBGYNs that were working for me. I also hired, and because I saw that women had other needs, I had two internists that worked for me. I, I knew right from the get-go that it was more to medicine than just what I did. I just didn't have any other tools myself, but I hired 
and brought on board a Chinese medicine practitioner. I had a nutritionist, mm. massage therapist, psychologist. I had biofeedback person. So I had what I call my ancillary. So I had um, this really gigantic business with a lot of ancillaries and all these other doctors. I had four nurse practitioners at my peak working for me. So I had a gigantic business in an 8,000 square foot office. And it was when I gave up obstetrics that I really completely changed my focus and I downsized. And so now my practice is, is small. You know, I'm, you know, I, I just have a different focus. I spend uh, a lot more time with patients. I'm not in insurance anymore. I canceled. I had this, you know, insurance in the U United States is hugely challenging. Yeah. And they play all these games. They don't pay the bills. You have to appeal all these, um, you know, that they only paid half the bill or something. And mm. I just didn't want to do it anymore. It's like, so when I gave up obstetrics, I kind of just redefined and just re, um, redid everything. And I changed my practice. I ended up moving into a different office space. Now in my office, I have like, a little mini kitchen. I have a gym, and um, we just—it's just different. And I'm much smaller, and I'm a cash-only practice now. And I have very long visits, so it's a different. It's really um, redefined what how I'm practicing medicine mm. now. Because in the old days, you know, they had very short visits, and I saw huge volumes. And I, you know, I took care of my patients very well, but I certainly did not get into any of the depth that I get into now in terms of their emotions and their lifestyle and and so forth. And um, but people have changed also. I've seen the patient population changing in terms of their illnesses. People are are they're not as well these days. And I think a lot of it has to do with in the 1990s when they started putting glyphosate in foods and Roundup and everything became plastic and we just we have a lot of challenges now especially children mm. that are um, and the adolescents and now the, the people in their 20s that they grew up in a time when there was a lot of convenience foods fast foods you know, a world of plastic lots of um, gmo foods herbicides and put into foods and so a lot of things have changed and i've really seen that we have so much more autoimmune disease and and emotional problems, sleep mm. problems. You know, I'm sure you've seen that, you know, attention deficit disorder is growing. And, mm. you know, autism gets a lot of focus. And autism has really um, increased dramatically in its prevalence. But that's like just sort of like um, one sign of the change of health because I'm seeing it in um, young people, so many women now and children when they're going through puberty. So a lot of girls are going through earlier puberties than they ever used to. And this is really very, very bad for them. We now know that this increases their lifetime risk of depression, increases their lifetime risk of breast cancer. They have higher rates of metabolic dysfunction, obesity. So, and that's a problem. And then we're finding young girls now having terrible menstrual cycles, tremendous amounts of cramps, mm. irregularity, you know, premenstrual syndrome. And then the go-to for the conventional OBGYN doctor and family doctors to put these young girls, 14 years old, 15 years old, and even younger, to put them on birth control pills. Um, and of course, that's not in any way addressing the underlying problem that's going on here, which is chronic inflammation, nutritional deficiencies, too much light, too much electromagnetic radiation, lots of stress. Mm. So, you know, we're, we're just having a whole new generation of, 
of high levels of infertility. We know, for example, men's sperm counts. When I was in medical school, the um, we were told the normal male sperm count was 60 million. Now it's 20 million. Well, we're just redefining what's normal mm. based on what's happening, but it's not really good, you know? Yeah. So if the average person is obese, does that mean that being obese is normal? Huh. You know, but that's what's happening. So we're finding there's a lot of things that are, I've been in practice now for over three decades, and and I've seen things changing in the health of my patients. The incidence of polycystic ovary syndrome, which I mentioned I had, has really just blown blown up. We have huge, huge rates mm. of polycystic ovary syndrome and um, just lots and lots of problems. And because women go into menopause now, I say with like lo lower levels of reserves, like they don't build their bone well. Mm. So being, for example, on birth control pills, some women are on both birth control pills for decades. They actually don't develop the, the, their op, an optimized musculoskeletal system. So because there's estrogen receptors in, in bone and joints and, and muscle, and because birth control pills are what they are, they're, they're actually the anti-hormones. They're not mm. hormones. They're chemicals designed so that women don't have their normal hormones so that they're not fertile. And so they don't build optimal um, musculoskeletal systems. So we're now seeing such an explosion, certainly in the U.S., of women having joint replacements, knee replacements, hip replacements, fractures. Over half of women now in the menopause are suffering from an osteoporotic fracture. So there's a lot of um, medical problems that are escalating, mm. um, and I've seen it over the last three decades. So it's been it's been quite a revelation seeing that you know that at every and it doesn't matter which decade of life we're talking about we're seeing more and more problems. And as you may have heard, there's been um, really an, an epidemic of depression in the U.S. Suicide rates are climbing. Mm. And something like in women in their 40s, um, over a quarter of them are on antidepressants. So, you know, there's just a lot of a lot of issues here that I'm dealing with that, that really weren't so prevalent when I first started practicing. Mm. And, I'm, I'm, you know, I've seen it. You know, it's really been quite a transition from people whose primary issues were just, um, you know, I want my normal checkup, I want a pap smear, and now it's like just a whole array of problems. Mm. So, and, and the problem is that the conventional doctors are not being trained in medical school to deal with what's happening. So they don't know what to do when these patients come in and they have this enormous array of, of symptomatology, you know, they have autoimmune disease and they have um, problems with sleeping and mood problems, and they're all overweight, and they no matter what they do, they can't lose weight, and they're having gut problems, you know, galore. I mean, it seems like the average person is on a drug to prevent their stomach from making stomach acid, you know. Mm. These are like drugs that block, they're called PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, that block the production of stomach acid. And so many people have gut problems and chronic constipation, and, and so there's just this, you know, gigantic array of, of medical problems that didn't seem to exist in anywhere the degree that they are now mm. um, just a few decades ago. Mm. And the poor doctors, they're not being trained in medical school. So they look at their drugs and they, they only have these drugs and they say, what drug can I give this person? <laughs> you know, yeah. They don't know what drug to, you know, people come in and they often have like 10 different symptoms. And then the doctor says, you know, you're only allowed one symptom per visit. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, but I have 10 symptoms. And so it's like, then they try to think, okay, what drug can I give for each of these symptoms? 
because they don't see that it's all linked to gut health, you know, Mm -hmm. because we didn't really talk about it, but the whole gut and the microbiome, which is a whole new world and circadian rhythm dysfunction. So they don't really see the underlying issues that can lead to an array of different symptomatology, but it's all grounded in the same underlying problem. They don't Mm -hmm. see that. So they just see this array of symptoms and they keep thinking, what drug can I give for this symptom and this symptom and this symptom? And they just don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, it's really been challenging for the doctors. And, um, you know, that's why I feel very blessed that I, I saw the light, you know, quite Mm -hmm. a while ago, you know, like, um, now it's been about a decade ago that I saw the light that, you know, we can't just keep doing what we're doing. We can't Mm -hmm. just try to find a pharmaceutical to match with a symptom and then think that we're we're actually helping patients. It's not going to work. So it's, um, definitely keeping me busy and challenged. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a whole new world now of, mm. of health problems. And I, I assume you're probably seeing some of this in the UK. Mm. Yep. Yeah, we are. I mean, you, and just thinking about then where you are now, you know, you're talking to me from California. You say you've got your whole career has been from there, really. What about before that? Where did you grow up? Well, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up on the outskirts of, of New York City, right right on the 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 line of New York City and Nassau County on Long Island. So I mm. grew up in a, a town called Great Neck. Mm. And um, I was just there this past weekend visiting my mom's sister, who still lives there in the same house that she lived in since the, the mid-1950s. Mm. And um, it's a, a lovely place. And so I still am very much a New Yorker, even though I've been away from New York for, for a very long time. Mm. But that's where my roots were. And then I went to college in New Jersey at Princeton University, and uh, and it was after college that I came out to California, and I went to the University of Southern California School of Medicine. And I didn't plan on living the rest of my life in California <laughs> or setting up a practice here, but I kind of got used to it, and uh, I ended up staying in California, and I've been here ever since. And when I moved from Los Angeles, which is where USC Medical School is mm. in Los Angeles, um, when I finished, um, well, I did my medical school, and then I did my residency also in in Hollywood area of, of the L.A. area. Mm. And then when I decided I would go into practice, I looked at all the areas. And at that time, Orange County was like the new frontier. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> People, when I said, I'm going to move to Orange County, they said, oh, my gosh, that's like the boonies. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, there's like, you know, it's what like primitive. What does that mean, the boonies? <laughs> you know? Oh, that's a that's phrase I'm not familiar orange. with. Yeah, that's like, you know, like, you know, that's uh, like almost like primitive. Right. You're going to Orange County. Now it's like one, it's just one giant urban center after another. You mm. know, the whole, it's a continuum from Orange County all the way into Los Angeles of mm. just construction. And when I first came to Irvine, there was, uh, there were very few people here. And um, it was like, I think, under 60,000 in the whole place. And now it's like like around 300,000. Mm. So, um, and the city of Irvine is one of the biggest employers. It's full of high-tech um, companies. So it's, it's a very metropolitan area now. But when I came, it was filled with um, orange groves and strawberry <laughs> fields. And down the street where we bought a house, there were cows grazing <laughs> and it's it's there are no cows grazing anywhere and there are no <laughs> strawberry fields that's all gone so what was life like for you and your family and great neck 
Well, I lived with my mom and my dad, and I had two brothers and a cat. <laughs> and we lived in what um, is called a split-level house. I don't know if you have those in, in England. Yeah. Uh, so when you walk in the front door, um, you're on the main level that has a kitchen, dining room, and living room. And then you walk up a few steps. It's like a half a flight. Okay. And that's where the bedrooms are. And then you can walk down like a half a flight. And that's um, actually where the family room would be. But my parents changed the house. They bought it brand new and before it was built. And they modified it so that my, <clears throat> so that my grandparents, my mom's mom and dad, um, could live in the house with us. So they created actually an apartment mm. uh, on the lower level of the split level house and my my grandmother and my grandfather lived there and the reason that happened is and this is very sad my grandfather my mom's dad who is a brilliant lawyer just incredible brilliant he had what we call malignant hypertension hmm. his blood pressure went sky high and at that time there were no drugs whatsoever so I'm not against drugs. I just don't see them as the, the ticket to health for everything under the sun. Mm. But there was nothing that could help him. They went all around. They went to Duke. They put him on what's called the rice diet. They did everything they could to try to lower his blood pressure, but they couldn't. And then he had a massive stroke. Mm. So it was a terrible situation, and he couldn't work. He was only 49. And mm. um, so that's why they moved in with my mom and her family, which included me. But it was quite a treat for me um, to have my grandparents live with me. And unfortunately, my, my grandfather ended up having a heart attack not too long after. And so he had a, a very sad, you know, shortcut life, you know, from having this malignant hypertension. And my grandmother, you know, stayed there and lived with us. And, and so I would actually say... I'm going to grandma's house. Right. All I did is walk, I would walk down five stairs. And I, would be in, I would be in grandma's house. And um, she made all of, um, so we were um, a Jewish family. Mm. And so she would make all of these Jewish dishes um, that, um, and she would have light the candles on Friday night. And, and it was just a wonderful thing to grow up with my grandma down at grandma's house, mm. five stairs down. And, um, and she went on vacations with us, and um, both of my parents were lawyers. My mom mm. was a very um, early, groundbreaking kind of a woman lawyer. When she went to law school, she went to Brooklyn Law School, very few women were in law, very few. And she was a brilliant lawyer. She was a litigator. Mm. If she hadn't decided, I feel sure in my mind, if she hadn't decided to be um, a mom and only a part-time attorney, she could have been on the Supreme Court. She was that mm. brilliant. But she she made the sacrifice, like a lot of women do, to take care of her three kids mm. and um, only practice law part-time. And uh, she encouraged me, as did my father, to be anything I wanted that, you know, there was, there was no, there were no barriers for me. And, mm. and when I, I lived during the time when the word feminism was first um, created, mm -hmm. there was no feminism in, until like around 1970. And that was the year when I graduated high school mm. and I became like an early feminist. And I, um, you know, my mom was really an early feminist and she said, you know, women can do anything. Women can break down barriers. You can do whatever you want. And so when I went to Princeton University, I was actually in the first class that was all 
um, that was co-ed. Mm. Before that, it was um, only a, a man's school. And um, I actually had to fight to get a summer job there as a mail carrier because <laughs> they said, no, um, girls, women cannot be mail carriers. That is a man's job. You can be you can be a receptionist. And I said, I don't want to be a receptionist. I want to be a mail carrier. And um, I actually had to fight them. We um, ultimately I prevailed and they actually had a story with a picture of me carrying my mail bag um, um, that was put in like the uh, the Daily News and the newspaper in New York, you know, that, mm. you know, female beats Princeton and gets job as mail carrier. <laughs> it, you seems, know, but it seems inconceivable <laughs> now that that would be the case, but that was, I know, that was very real. It? Yeah, amazing. It, it was. And, and you know, <clears throat> I did have to fight a lot of, um, there was a lot of female discrimination. When I started my private practice, I was about the only woman working full time in the area in OBGYN, because like I mentioned, it was really a man's world at that time. <clears throat> and what happened was there was, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I had a little ad that was put in our little local newspaper just to announce that I had a practice. Mm. It was very, it was a little like quarter page ad and it was a little weekly newspaper and it was very soft and it just said, you know, my name and my practice. And somebody cut that out of the newspaper and drew a bullseye on it put it up in the doctor's lounge at the hospital and was they were using it as a dartboard. Right. <clears throat> so, yeah, so it was really quite something. You know, there, there was a lot of discrimination. So I kind of, you know, set, um, broke, you know, broke the ice for a lot of the women to follow me. Yeah. And how does that feel now, you know, <laughs> thinking back to, as you say, being the first, in the first class of co-ed class and, Thinking about you know, the, sort of the, I, the way the, that that's paved the way for others. How does that feel now looking back? Well, I, I feel, you know, very proud and privileged to have started, um, you know, the sort of be part of the original women's rights movement. You know, I, I really was and I, um, I belong to the National Organization of Women. It's called NOW. <clears throat> so I was part of that whole movement and that, you know, I have four kids myself and three are daughters and that there were no barriers for them that they could do whatever they wanted and go and you know that they hadn't the world was open to them to be what mm. they wanted and it was um really hard for my mom i mean that was pretty amazing that you know what she did um she was one of those really early women lawyers and then for me going into what was a, almost completely a male field and going into a male university. When I when I took organic chemistry hmm. um, in, in college, there were about 500 people in my class, and I think there were three females. Hmm. And it was in this room of like 500 guys. So <laughs> it, it was a little intimidating, yeah. but, uh, but you know, I didn't think too much about it. And, uh, you know, I, I, my mom helped me to be spunky so that I could, <laughs> you know, I would, I would fight for what I, what I wanted, you know, and, and that's sort of what happened when I started my own practice, when I went out and nobody, <clears throat> nobody really wanted me, even mm. though, you know, I had done so well and I had won all these awards and, and nobody saw my value. Nobody really wanted me. So I said, you know what, I'll just do my own thing, mm. you know, so if they could do it, I could do it. So <laughs> I think it gave me, it gave me the courage to do what I needed. And when I realized that the medical system was failing patients, that we couldn't just have this problem 
you know, of, of people getting sicker and sicker and then trying to solve problems by just giving people multitudes of, of pharmaceuticals. We call it pill to the ill, you know, mm, yeah. you just, that, that's not that's not really getting to the root cause of illness. It's not dealing with all the problems that are happening that people are facing with their food supply and environmental chemicals. It's just not dealing with mm. the issues that are really key that I said, you know what? You know, I don't care what the conventional system is saying. It's wrong. Mm. It's wrong. This is not the way to help people to be healthy. And so I just took a right turn. I blew up my old practice. I started a new kind of a practice and I went back to school and did a two year fellowship. Mm. You know, it's like it's like um, and for me, you know, I also want to be a role model for healthy aging. I want to show my patients Mm. that it doesn't matter how old you are. That's, you know, as long as you can do everything and you're healthy, that's what health span is like. Mm-hmm. And my, I got, I worked with my parents and my dad got to 98. My mother-in-law is almost a hundred now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I know how to help people to live really, really long lives. And, um, and that's hopefully going to be me as well. And so, you know, I feel like I'm just on the cusp of, of getting going here. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I have so much more to do. Like I, I just, um, I have such an agenda. I want to start. I have my first book is going to come out mm. in um, this year before the end of this year. And my goal is to write a book every year because I have so much content mm. because I've given I give lectures um, all over the U.S., all over the world and at medical conferences. And so I've created just um, like dozens of um, new slide decks they are all my own creation. So I have so much content with my slide decks and my information. I just need to turn them into um, into books so that yeah. people can more easily access this. So that's on my um, my to do list. I have so much <laughs> stuff on my to do list, guy. You know, so um, I'm sounds just. Like, um, it sounds like a long to do list. I'll ask you about your book uh, in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you: when you were at high school, was it always medicine? Were you always? Did you always know you wanted to go into medicine or? Or t- into the medical profession, I should say. Uh, or were there other interests well, at that time? What What were you interested in as well? Well, it's interesting. That's a great question. When When I grew up, my parents um, convinced me, I don't know if you want to call it brainwashed me, <laughs> into thinking they were really, and it made it simpler in a lot of ways. Because a lot of kids now, they see so many options. They think, well, I could do this, this, this. And sometimes when you have, if you ever go into a restaurant and they have one of those five page menus mm. and they have, you know, it's like, I don't know what to order. There's like too much, <laughs> you know, sometimes you go in and yep. you have like, you, can, I know that feeling. you know, you go into a, a prefix menu and it's like, you get a choice of two things, you know, two, one of two entrees, one, two appetizers, you know, it's like so much simpler. So my parents told me there were three careers I could choose from <laughs> and right. I believe them. <laughs> I could be, yeah, that would, I could be, a lawyer, mm. a teacher, or a doctor. That was all. So I thought, okay, I mean, that's all I, I didn't consider <laughs> any other career. They, I was totally brainwashed. So <laughs> I chose, I thought about, okay, do I want to be a lawyer, a teacher, or a doctor? <laughs> and so I was good in science. Yeah. And I liked um, the thought of, of helping people in that regard. And my, my father said, you know, doing law is a great career, but I think you would be happier in medicine. And so based on that advice, <laughs> that was very simple advice. I, you know, he said, I think you'll be happier. It's like, okay, you're probably right, Dad. <laughs> so so I, I went into medicine. So I actually didn't have any, you know, great, uh, you know, 
you know, pains about thinking, oh, what is my mm-hmm. role in life? What should I do? You know, it was it was so cut and dried for me. It was like, <laughs> OK, I'm going to be a doctor. So that was that. And, and so uh, in know, hindsight, took, in hindsight, I, do you think that was a good thing that they limited your options then? Or do you sometimes think, oh, I wish they'd let me be a bit more have a bit more freedom of choice? Well, it's interesting because when I was at Princeton and so this was in the early 1970s, um, that was when a lot of corporations started to recruit. They started saying, you know, you, you have to have some women executives because it was, you know, feminism was starting to make a mark on 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 the big corporations. Mm. So when I was at Princeton, they had these job fairs where these big corporations, all the big ones, you know, at that time, you know, it would be like IBM, you know, a lot of the companies that exist now mm. didn't exist then. <laughs> but, you know, you know, but the big companies, the big car manufacturers and, you know, the, you know, IBMs and such, they all came and they were, had job fair, they came to the job fair and had a booth and they were hiring. And, you know, they had um, programs for, to help the women that they were hiring, these new grads from college, to go into their executive training programs. So, you know, I, I, it occurred to me, I thought back, you know, at that time, I wondered, you know, could I be the CEO right now of some, you know, maybe I could have been, you know, the, the CEO of HP, you know, mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. you know, because they were hiring women then to come and actually be put into executive tracks so that you would end up being an executive. Mm. And I thought, so I thought, you know, if I had done a different career path, you know, maybe I would be the CEO of, you know, one of these big new startup companies. I would have gone into business, would have been a different life. And so, you know, that has occurred to me that would have been a whole different career path had had I just actually even considered such things. But then I think about, um, you know, all that, that I have done. And, you know, I, there are very few people that can be at this stage of life and say, you know, I can't even count how many lives I've saved. Mm. I mean, literally saved, you know, like babies that would not have been alive had I not been there to step in and and do something, you know. And um, the lives that I have changed and helped, and I said, you know, I I made the right choice. You know, Mm. maybe I could have been the CEO of some major corporation, you know, and and something like that. Maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) This is all conjecture, right? Mm. But, you know, maybe I could have. But you know what? I'm happy with what I've done. I'm happy with what I'm still doing. And um, so I I think it was maybe for the best that my dad said, I think you'll be happy as a doctor. And I said, (laughs) okay, dad, that was the end of (laughs) Um, yeah, so that must be an amazing feeling looking back at what you've done and thinking about all those lives that you've had such a positive impact on. It, it is, and and so, um, you know, it's it's really a wonderful feeling when my patients, and this is, you know, since I've been in practice, I've actually had patients show up that I haven't seen in decades. This has happened on multiple occasions, and they show up in my office dragging this person with them who is someone I delivered and I've actually and I've actually had the privilege of delivering um some people that I delivered you know mm. it's like so I brought in you know the the, the second tier of babies and and I've taken I actually have several patients now that I actually deliver and they're my pa- they're my gynecological patients and um so it is um it's really a wonderful feeling to actually see the, the fruits of your labor mm. like that, you know, that, um, and some of them, like I, 
have a patient who's been my patient now for decades, and she had a set of twins, and she went into premature labor, and um, she was not even 20 weeks pregnant. We were able to stop the labor, um, and it turned out the reason that she was even going into labor was she had an, what's called an incompetent cervix, where her cervix was just opening, and I, I took a I held my breath for the whole procedure, and I put in a stitch that's called a cerclage, and I sewed her cervix closed. Mm. And it held, it was like paper when I was sewing it, but she had no chance, there was no chance of survival. This was like like a last-ditch effort to try mm. to save these twins. Mm. And uh, and it held for um, until she got to 28 weeks, and then the tissue, the, the stitch held, but the tissue tore right through it mm. at that point. But um, we were able to um, to deliver the babies, and they actually survived. And they're they're beautiful young men now. They're mm. they're men. They're men, you know, because this is a while ago. Mm. This is like um, probably you know like twenty over twenty five years ago. So now they're young men, and and I know, and she knows that they wouldn't be here, you know. And now they're they're getting married, and they wouldn't be here if I hadn't held my breath and put that stitch in. So, yeah. you know, it's, I have, I have no regrets that I, I chose this, this career. Great. Just one question before I go on to ask you about your book. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, do you still feel like a New Yorker in Los Angeles or do you feel like you've become a naturalized, you know, citizen of Los Angeles now? Or do you still feel like an alien? You know, I often hear about New Yorkers, going to the, the West Coast, they still feel, it's very, very different, and they still feel like a New Yorker all those years later. Is that true for you? I do. I, well, first of all, people, when they first meet me, they say, oh, you're a New Yorker. You know, <laughs> I got rid of my, I don't say Long Island anymore <laughs> like I did. But, I, you know, I accept that I have a New York accent. And, um, you know, I think when you spend the first 18 years in a certain place and you sort of get indoctrinated that you're a New Yorker, that you all always will be a New Yorker. Mm. And so I, I will always be a New Yorker um, transplanted into California. <laughs> yeah. even though. So, and when I go to New York, I feel very at home with my New York friends yeah. and I have many, and, you know, I feel like we're the same, you know, coast to coast that, that I, I fit right in with, with New York. And I was just there this past weekend and I was in Manhattan and just walking around. I felt incredibly at home. Mm. Well, that's good. So just tell me then about uh, your book, because you do have a book coming out uh, later this year, I think, quite soon, I think, don't you? And this is, this is focused on something you mentioned earlier, which is polycystic ovary syndrome, isn't it? PCOS. So just tell me about, it, it tell me about that. Tell me about that book and what, why that is the focus. Well... It is the most common endocrine disorder of women, and it's a condition that I had to battle myself mm. and and conquered. And so I really wanted to have that be my first book. Mm. And I've got many, many more, but this one is dear and near to my heart. Um, I have searched the literature, so I'm not a researcher, mm. although I may get into doing some clinical research down the road, but I'm not really a researcher. I'm a clinician. Mm. But... I have a lot of, I, I believe very much in the power of observation, which has been really trivialized recently over the last few decades mm. as big pharma kind of took over with their placebo-controlled double-blinded studies. Like mm. that's the only 
standard of medicine or the only standard of science, which is not true. If you look at history, most things that were discovered were discovered because people were observant, right? Mm. They weren't doing placebo-controlled double-blind studies, right? Yep. They just looked. And, and so as I observed my own patients and I saw what seemed to work and what didn't work, and then I, I went and I searched the, the published literature on what is called PubMed, Mm. where all the research in the world, all the peer-reviewed published articles are are archived, and I can access anything that's ever been published anywhere in the world. And so I, I go through the literature, and I don't just look in the gynecology literature. I look in the environmental medicine literature, the neuroscience literature. I look across every the entire spectrum of research. And looking at that, I was able to put together a brand new view of polycystic ovary syndrome and with that a new approach to treating it naturally and uh, understanding that um, it's although it's been around forever so polycystic ovary syndrome Mm. which is manifested in women with excessive androgens so they tend to have more um, they can have like facial hair which no female wants to Mm. be shaving a beard Mm. but they, they tend to have more facial hair they can have cystic acne, which can be very, very difficult to treat. They can have male pattern baldness, where they lose um, a lot of their head hair. I mean, mm. and they tend um, some between 70, 80 percent are overweight or obese, which, you know, fortunately for me, I, I was always in the category that's called lean PCOS, mm. where which is only about 20 percent, which are normal or thin. And um, so and they have tremendous difficulty losing weight. Women with PCOS tend to have more emotional problems, sleep problems, irritable bowel syndrome, and a higher rate of autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's thyroiditis and also even lupus. They also have higher rates of things like endometriosis and uterine fibroids. So it's a very, very um, terrible condition for women to have. Mm. And it's pretty much, it's very ignored. The The only treatments that are offered are um, birth control pills, metformin and spironolactone, which have been around for a long, long time, none of which actually get to the underlying problems. And unfortunately, women with polycystic ovary syndrome have higher rates of um, metabolic dysfunctions like insulin resistance, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. Mm. And birth control pills have, and they're also more hypercoagulable, so they're more prone to making blood clots. And birth control pills essentially has the same um, spectrum of problems associated with it. So that's why we don't give birth control pills to smokers or people who just had a heart attack mm. or women with out of control high blood pressure because it's actually very bad for women metabolically. And so the last thing that you'd want to do is really give women who already have a, a metabolic profile that is unhealthy to give them a drug that makes their metabolic profile that much more unhealthy. Mm. And um, there's actually studies now published that show that when you give birth control pills to women with PCOS, they're more even more likely to develop a blood clot. So this is not really a good treatment. And metformin is an endocrine disruptor. They've now done studies on women who are on it through pregnancy that show that by age four, their own babies are more obese. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's actually altering metabolically the baby. So these are not really great solutions. So I really wanted to come up, and I have, with... Um, a, a presentation for women with PCOS that allows them to deal with it in a very natural way. PCOS has been around forever. It's actually a survival advantage. Having a little extra 
male hormone in a woman makes a woman um, actually healthier in a lot of ways. She's going to be less, a little teeny bit less fertile, which mm. in ancient times was good. It means that she had, she would have fewer babies mm. and she'd be, she wasn't, she wasn't infertile. She was just slightly less fertile. So having fewer babies meant each baby had a better chance of survival and the mother had a better chance of survival because a lot of women would die in childbirth. Right. So, um, and then if you have a little extra testosterone, you're going to be stronger. And this is so fascinating. They found that a really high percentage of women in the Olympics hmm. have polycystic ovary syndrome. Right. And, you know, especially the ones that involve a lot of strength. So women are, you know, stronger and faster. And, and they have maybe, you know, maybe that's what made me more spunky. You know, it's mm. like, I'm not going to put up with that crap. You know, you can't do that to me, you know. So we're not we're not like, you know, as shy, you know, wallflowers, you know, like we get out there. Yeah. A lot of very accomplished women have polycystic ovary syndrome. The problem. And so it was really a survival advantage. And it's built into our genes. The problem now is that you're taking this situation and then you're adding in the conventional American or Western diet. The, all the bad lifestyle things with electromagnetic radiation and too much light and mm. and all the all this stuff with sitting all day long and so you're taking you know what is actually an advantage and you're turning it into a negative and then the biggest thing is that we have been exposed to too many plastics now and it turns out that women with polycystic ovary syndrome seem to bioaccumulate uh, like bisphenol A which is um, like a plastic endocrine disruptor. Mm. And so women, they've done studies that women with polycystic ovary syndrome bioaccumulate more of this. They're maybe not as good at getting rid of it. And in utero, if you're exposed to these chemicals, it can alter the way your hormone receptors form. So women with polycystic ovary tend to have receptor problems for their hormones. So they don't actually receive and, and process and make estrogen properly. So they tend to have too low of an estrogen um, uh, level. And it, it creates this whole snowball effect, which mm. I go into in the book about why they end up making even more testosterone than they because they always make a little bit more, but now they make a whole lot more mm. and how this whole thing happens. And then I have, um, and then it turns out that basically estrogen is very key to maintaining our circadian rhythm. Our master clock has estrogen receptors. And so we now know, and this was the, the winner of the um, Nobel Prize for Medicine a year ago, were the, the people that discovered the clock gene. So we now know that everything in our bodies um, are timed. Everything mm. is timed. We, mm. we, we think that we, we have some free rule of, of what we do, what time we do it. No, like our insulin comes out and it's optimized at a certain time. Everything is on the clock, mm. basically. And women with PCOS, they actually live perpetually in jet lag and you know what jet lag does to yeah. people and, and they have people who live with jet lag uh, they end up having higher rates of cancer and depression and diabetes and obesity and all these terrible things hmm. and women with pcos essentially are living their lives in perpetual jet lag so i give um ways involving time restricted eating nutritional supplements stress reduction exercise, a whole array of natural ways that women can get their bodies back to the way that they should be without um, accessing some of these unfortunately um, harmful, you know, they may have some symptomatic benefit, but they have underlying harm as well. These other pharmaceuticals that are now the only tools that are being used by the conventional medical world to give women with polycystic ovary syndrome 
um, a real chance to to um, reboot their their clocks, their systems, and the gut microbiome, which is very key as well. We now know from published literature that just came out in the last two years that what was proposed um, several years ago has been proven that women with polycystic ovary syndrome do have abnormal gut microbiomes. The bacteria are not right, so that creates a whole inflammatory cascade, and women with polycystic ovary are inherently inflammatory. So it's a complex condition, which I try to present in a very understandable way okay. and then give a very practical way to to deal with it. And what's the title of the book? Um, well, the main title is PCOS SOS. Okay, okay. And so, there's a subtitle, but you just, if that's all they need to know, is that's the main title, PCOS SOS. Okay. okay, and that's the book out this year. You say you want to do one every year, so do you know what the the topics of your next books are going to be, or is it you're going to just work it out once you've got this one done? Well, the next one is going to deal with menopause. And I haven't um, for sure decided if I'm going to do an overall menopause type of book or if I'm going to make it more specific to um, different facets of menopause that women have to deal with, such as mood disorder or cardiovascular issues. So I might do an overview or I might... Um, pick a, a specific area. I haven't decided yet. Okay. And then my other goal is to create small books, like little pocket books on specific women's topics, mm. like um, like menstrual cramps, dysmenorrhea, PMS, um, different specific, you know, endometriosis, fibroids. So very small books, like only 30 to 35 pages with no junk in it, no filler, nothing, just mm. like, this is what you have, this is why you have it, this is what you can do about it. Right. And um, so these small little books on very specific topics um, of women's health. So we could sort of like the unique issues that women face that are definitely female only. Mm. Well, good luck with writing those. It sounds like a great idea. Um, now, I'd like to uh, finish the interview with uh, three questions that I ask everyone that I've spoken to on here. And so the first one is, uh, now we you're talk you we started this interview at your time 6:30 a.m. so I'm very grateful for that thank you again for starting so early but you said uh, when we before we started uh, recording that you're an early riser anyway so this might be related to that the first question is do you have like a daily routine uh particularly in the morning that you do every morning uh you know to get yourself in the right frame of mind for the day ahead do you have a, a routine that you always follow um not Exactly. But what I try to do, so it's not like every single day, it's not that, um, not that scheduled, but mm. when I can, while I'm getting dressed and getting ready, I like to put on podcasts. Right. And so I like to listen <laughs> to some of my favorite podcasts. So that would be sort of like, um, I guess, I don't know what it is about me, but I guess I don't tolerate downtime at all. Mm. So I have to fill, fill things with, uh, with things that I find enjoyable and educational. So, um, very often I will put on um, one of my favorite podcasts and, and just, just kind of listen. And um, But other than that, um, I, I try to have a breakfast every day mm. because I, I try not to be full of hot air. You know, I, try <laughs> to walk, I try to walk the talk. And yeah. so um, I do um, try to have, you know, a nice breakfast. And, um, so, and, and so that's pretty much it. I just get up, listen to a podcast, get dressed, have some breakfast, and get out the door. <laughs> so it's nothing too fancy. Okay. What podcast do you enjoy listening to? Well, I one of your um, fellow uh, 
British people. I, I like, although he's transplanted. So Peter Bowes is my favorite. So oh, I try yeah. to listen to his his um, his podcast is one of my favorite. And and I've been on a number of different podcasts. So I'm just I'm experimenting and trying a bunch of of new ones. And now I'm going to add yours. <laughs> so <Good. that's> gonna <laughs> be, I know. So every time I'm on a podcast, I add it into oh, into my list. So that'll be, that is fun. Well, I look forward to hearing what you think of the uh, future episodes. Now, uh, the second question then, um, when you look back over your whole uh, career, and this can be professional, it can be personal, what is the the thing that you've, when you look back over everything you've done, you feel most proud of? You know, it doesn't have to be about financial gain or anything like that. It can just be the moment that you, when you're thinking back, if you ever think back to what's happened of, you know, you think, right, yeah, I did it. I did it right that time. I'm really proud that I did that. Okay. Well, this is a really tough one. And I, I, I hesitate to even tell you this because I actually have not talked about this, but I'm going to, I'm going to share this with you because you're such a nice guy, guy. (laughs) And um, so, and so this is a, a tragic thing in my life, but I dealt with it. Um, it was a long, long time ago, but I had a son who died unexpectedly and it was a terrible tragedy. And what I'm most proud of is that I dedicated my life to continuing my life, that I wasn't going to let that destroy me and that I let it shape me in ways that made me a better person. Mm. And, And it was a very conscious decision. You know, it's like, okay, a terrible thing has happened. Like, for a mother, the worst thing that you can imagine actually happened. You know, when mm. something happens that you think can't happen and then it does happen, so what do you do? And, I mean, you can't turn the clock back. So I made a decision, a conscious decision, that I would have a good life, that I would do good things, and that um, I would not let this destroy me. And I, I think that I'm proud of myself for making that decision mm. that I would I would go on, I would carry on my life and I would dedicate my life to helping people. And I think it made me enormously more empathetic. You know, I can feel people's pain. I understand, mm. you know, when they suffer. And um, so I probably, you know, that was a turning point for me that I, I made the decision that mm. I was going to, um, I was going to somehow overcome this this tragedy and and continue to have a good life and that I was allowed to laugh and smile that mm. you know that that was okay you know that I could um, move on with my life because because I can't go backwards you know all of us in life are on what I call um, like a conveyor belt mm. you know we all get on when we're born and the conveyor belt goes from this wall to that wall and we're just on it and it inexorably moves in only one direction you can't go sideways you can't go backwards mm. so what are you going to do with your ride you know we're all on it for just a certain period of time and so i made a decision you know i'm going to make my conveyor belt you know a good long ride mm. and i'm going to try to keep it from being bumpy i'm going to try to keep it smooth and high and uh, and i think i've held steady to that path mm. well thank you for telling me that i know that must be very difficult and to talk about, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what was your your son's name, and how old was he when he when he died? No, his name was Brian, and he was almost a year and a half old. Okay, okay, so he was very young. He was just he was just, he was just a little guy, yeah. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that, and I appreciate you telling me about no, that. No, I appreciate that. So yeah, it was a ve- you you say it was a very very conscious decision. Do you remember the 
that period must have been so difficult. But you remember, do you, that there was a a day or a, a period of time when you 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 told yourself that that's what you had to do. I did. One of my friends said, I don't know how you can go on. You know, like, how do you? I said, well, um, like, what are my choices? Should mm. I just go drive my car off a cliff? You know, like, what are my choices? How can so and, and that question, when my friend said, I don't know how you can go on, it made me think, well, I have to go on. So what does go on mean for me? You know, mm. so what does it mean to to continue your life after something like that happens? And that's where it really was conscious thinking about what should my life be like from now on? What should I do? You know, mm. how should I deal with this? And and it really was very conscious decision making on my part that I would not let this destroy me. Hmm. Well, congratulations. Well done on doing that. I have a, a friend who uh, lost her daughter at a very uh, similar age, and it's a very, very incredibly distressing thing to happen, isn't it? And it's a testament to anyone who yeah. comes through the other side um, of that kind of situation. So, yeah, thank you for telling me about that. And, uh, you know, very, it's an impressive thing to do. Not Not everyone can well. do it, so... Well done. Well, you know, everyone who's in a situation like that has to do something. Mm. So, you know, because what are you going to do? You know, mm. you're going to keep living. So, you know, um, you know, I just think taking try to take control of your life as best you can and moving forward. And, you know, I will send all my emotional energies to your friend. Mm. You know, uh, I believe that you can have actually distance healing, <laughs> you know, that, mm. to try to help send uh, some some good healing thoughts to your friend. Well, thank you. She will appreciate that. I'll pass that on. Um, and the final question then, um, and this can be anything from a book to a piece of music or, you know, an album or uh, a TV series that you're watching, but what are you enjoying right now at the moment in terms of something that you're consuming that's creative, like music or a book or anything like that? What, what are you really enjoying at the moment? Well, I have a friend who is a professional writer, and he writes poetry, mm. and it's a form called haiku. And um, so he's been, he turned me on to this, and, okay. and I actually started writing a little bit myself and sending it to him, it's just what, for fun. What is haiku poetry, just for, I'm not sure exactly well, what it's, that is. Well, it's just like, um, it's like an Asian form of poetry that has very specific form, right. you know, where you have... You, you know, you have just a few words and, um, you know, and it's, you know, it's very condensed mm. kind of. Um, and I've always been a bit of a poetry writer myself. Mm. So when we have family events, I'm I always write a poem to mm. commemorate the event, like <laughs> for a, a wedding, an anniversary, a, a birth or an engagement or something. So um, so basically it's poetry for me. So I enjoy writing um the poetry and and i'm just dabbling in this other haiku thing he's right. the one that really writes it and he's been published in it and um but it's amazing how you can use very few words and create tremendous meaning and emotional impact that's that's like how do you like it's really compacting things you know mm. he's like taking because i tend to be very overly wordy when i write <laughs> stuff I have to be edited down like by a lot, <laughs> a lot. You know, it's like, you know, even, um, you know, the computer tries to edit me down, like get out, you know, like turn these three words into one word, you know? <laughs> and um, so I'm always edited down. So when you try to write poetry, you have to try to be brief, but yet powerful. 
So that I kind of I really love it because it it kind of tries to it helps me with skills I don't really have you mm. know in terms of trying to get to the point and get the emotional impact in very few words. So um, that that is kind of fun. The other thing that I'm doing with um, my mother-in-law, who's almost a hundred, is that she loves art, mm. and so um, <laughs> I have all the um, these uh, art equipment, like different kinds of colored um, marker pens and and uh, and colored pencils and things. So what I do, rather than you know, you've heard of like adult coloring books, mm, yeah, probably. So I make my own adult coloring books for her. Okay. So like I'll draw. I'll draw like a, a whole outline and, and I'll draw the picture and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll draw the outline in different colors, you know, and then she uses the, the pencil to color in that color. Mm. <laughs> and so we create art together. Wow. So, and I have some really pretty pictures where we create the, the art together. So, um, that's that's a, another fun thing for me that's creative fantastic that sounds like a great thing to do and that could be uh, if if all else fails with your book every year you can create some uh, adult coloring books you know what this could be a new business you know <laughs> that's a great idea guys, you know? because um i am a little wordy and fortunately i hired a professional editor <laughs> yeah. to edit me. there's no way that i could edit myself i might add words <laughs> so this is good <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Felice. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Hi, it's Guy again. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of Creative Forces. I hope you enjoyed it. Just a quick word at the end of this episode, because you now, if you like what you hear with the podcast, you now have the opportunity, if you wish, to help to fund it. Now, at the moment, Creative Forces is a fortnightly affair, uh, but what I'd love to do in the future is to do it more frequently. I'd love to be able to travel and pay for the travel expenses to go and um, meet guests face-to-face because it just makes for a better interview. I think you really find out more about the person if you're, you're face-to-face. Um, and so, yeah, looking for funding. It's very much an optional thing. If you like what you hear and you want to help, great. If you don't, don't worry about it at all. Please continue enjoying the podcast. If you do want to find out more, though, we I now have a, a Patreon page for the uh, podcast, and you can find it at Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash creative forces pod. That's patreon.com forward slash creative forces pod. If you do decide you're in a position to help fund the podcast, there are various rewards on offer, uh, including exclusive uh, bonus content, which only um, people who help to fund the podcast will get. There's also the chance, if you go big, that we can uh, sit down and have a cup of tea. Any help you can give would be most welcome. But as I say, don't worry about it if you can't. Please help. Uh, please go on enjoying the podcast, uh, liking and subscribing if you can. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. See you soon.